Well, it is coming down to the end of our time in Genesis. I want to encourage you to open your scripture to uh, Genesis chapter 50. And lest you think that this is the last week, we will have one more week in Genesis. Yes, there is no chapter 51, but we will have one more week. I'm sure you've all been through deaths in your own family. When uh, deaths occur, I have, I've been, uh, because of the call God has put on my life, I've, I've been in and around people, probably uh, more so than some of you, uh, around death, around uh, deaths in families. And um, I've found that death in a family is sometimes truth serum. What really has been deep down in the family kind of bubbles up to the surface, both the good and, and the not so good. And my mother tells a story about when my great-grandfather died. She and my father were sitting in their living room after the funeral and one of my great-grandfather's daughters, Betty, came bursting through the front door, walked straight past them to a marble-top table, took everything off the marble-top table, picked it up, walked to the door, turned to my parents and said, this is mine. Walked out, put it in her car, and they never saw that table again. <laughs> Death of a loved one tends to reveal what's inside. This is certainly true of Joseph's 11 brothers after Jacob dies. We see it, see what's been on the inside the whole time. Look with me at chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive their transgression, the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Father God, I pray that you enable me to speak your words, to make this part 
of your word that you preserve for us more understandable. And may it point to you and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, after going back to chapter 49, after Jacob has blessed his children, God's word says that he drew up his feet, right there at the end of 49, he drew up his feet into the bed and he breathed his last. And one of his last uh, requests, or rather commands to his sons was to take his body back to the promised land, back to Canaan, and bury him there in that cave that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite. And so he is buried in that cave. They take that journey up to Canaan, and they come back. And I imagine that on the way back, the brothers started thinking. I just got back from a long car trip, Ohio, and back. And on a long trip, you tend to think. That's what I do. I kind of drive and think. I imagine as they were coming back in that caravan, they began to think. And some of the old fears started to bubble up to the surface. Fears that that were in their heart all along. Did Joseph really forgive us? Has he been lying in wait this whole time, these past 17 years, to to wait for the perfect time to get us back? I mean, we did some pretty heinous things to him. How can he just forgive us like that? That's not what we would do. That's not in our hearts. I can't imagine Joseph being that gracious and that merciful. Has all this generosity been just a show? So they make up a lie, telling Joseph that their father's dying wish, his last breath, <laughs> was that, they, that Joseph forgives the brothers. And in perhaps one of the greatest statements in Scripture, Joseph reassures them and says, It's right there. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God intended it for good. That many people shall be kept alive. So do not fear. I will provide for you. And this interchange gives us a quick snapshot. And that's what I really want to focus on this week. It gives us a snapshot of how you and I many times and in various ways approach God like the 11 brothers. We approach God in a way that is improper, as a vengeful, unforgiving taskmaster. That's many times how we come into our relationship with God, how we interact with him, as a vengeful, unforgiving taskmaster. And if we look at verse 15 together, you see right there the first part of that. Verse 15 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to him, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back. There it is. Pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. They think Joseph has been waiting these 17 years to take revenge. In a letter to a neighbor, 
was written, Dear Frank, I've been your neighbor for six tumultuous years. When you borrowed my tiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted rap music. When your dog went to the bathroom all over my lawn, you didn't care. I could go on, but I'm certainly not one that holds grudges. I'm, so I'm just writing to this letter to tell you that your house is on fire. <laughs> it's hard not to hold grudges, isn't it? It's really hard. When you have deep relationships, when you have long relationships, and, and you've been hurt over and over and over again, it's hard not to build up walls, not to hold grudges. We tend not to believe it when they apologize after a certain amount of time, isn't it? We keep them at arm's length. We say, okay, here and no further. When they're generous to us, we tend to think twice about it. Why are they being generous to me? To put it in simple terms, we just don't trust them, do we? And the brothers begin to think about their situation on the way back to Canaan, and they think, how could Joseph possibly forgive us? I mean, think about what they took from Joseph. They, they took away his life in Canaan. They certainly took away his comfort and ease that he had in that family, right? They took away his family. He was sold into slavery. His family was gone and dead to him. They took, he, they took away his youth from age 17 to 39. He was indentured. His brothers naturally think, how could he possibly let all that go? How could all that possibly be water under the bridge for Joseph? It wouldn't be for me. He has to be holding a grudge. After all, he has to be just like us. Did you get that? He has to hold a grudge. Because after all, he has to be just like us. I'd hold a grudge. And they think that Joseph must be waiting for the right time, and this is it. The moment that the other shoe is going to drop. That's what they've been waiting for for 17 years. The other shoe to drop in their relationship. And there's a tendency for some of us to think the same way about God, isn't there? There's, got to, there's another shoe that's going to drop. See, there's two polar extremes that, that some people fall into and, and along that continuum about how we approach God, how we think of God. One is that we think of him as a heavenly Santa Claus. How What a wonderful apropos time to talk about this. We think of him as a heavenly Santa Claus. Always loving, always gracious, always giving, jolly. He lives to make your life better. He always answers your prayers. And when you sin, he kind of ho-ho-hoes it off. But then there's the other extreme. And that is a stern judge or a taskmaster. A God who's leaning forward on his throne of judgment, just waiting for you to make a mistake. 
A God biding his time. Looking for the right moment. An angry, vengeful God looking for the right time to drop his heavenly shoe on us. Now, make no mistake, God is perfectly just. And the Bible does present him as a judge. Isaiah 13.11 says, Thus I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their iniquity. That is true. Proverbs 11.21 tells us, Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist talks about God having his winnowing fork in his hand and he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor. That's a powerful image to an agricultural community. He will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn it up like chaff in an unquenchable fire. That's a pretty powerful image of judgment. And if you're here today and you haven't placed your trust in Jesus Christ, that truth is axiomatic. God will judge. The shoe of God's judgment will someday drop. And the Bible talks about it as a great and dreadful day. So much so that that in the book of Revelation, the people that are facing God's judgment say, would rather have the mountains fall on them and crush them than to face God's judgment. That's a better option. In other words, yes, God does punish sinners. Yes, God does judge sin. But to keep the metaphor going, there is another shoe and it will drop. But the very reason that we celebrate Christmas is because the shoe did drop, but it dropped on Christ. It dropped on Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches us that if you believe that he took the punishment for your sin, that there is no judgment left for you. Isn't that amazing? There's no judgment left for you. There is no other shoe that you have to constantly be aware of in your life. Like the woman caught in adultery in in John 8, after all the people disperse and, and it's just Jesus and she, and he says, where are your accusers? That's meant for us. As we trust in Christ, there are no more accusers. There is no more condemnation. Romans 8 is true. If you are found in Christ, there is no other shoe. There is no judgment for you. That is the exact position you are in if you've repented for your sin and trusted in Christ. And so, if, if you have 
placed your faith in Christ. And when you treat God like Joseph's brothers treated him, when you fear another shoe is going to drop, if that is how you sometimes approach God, you absolutely break his heart. If you look at verse 17, it says, when Joseph heard this, he just began to weep. Why did he begin to weep? Why did Joseph begin to weep? Because they didn't trust him after all these years. After all the generosity, all the love, all the affection, all the time they spent together, 17 years living with them, and they didn't trust him. Joseph thought, how could they think of that? How could they treat me like this? Did they think that it was just crocodile tears back in chapter 45 when I was just weeping and forgiving them and forgiving them and assuring them that I love them, I love them, I forgive you, don't worry. And now they make up this story. And now they treat me like this. After all I had done to them, Joseph must be thinking, they don't trust me. And how can we think like that of a God after what he has done for us in Jesus Christ? On top of that, the brothers thought Joseph had not truly forgiven them. So they not only looked at him as a vengeful Vengefully, but they also looked at Joseph as unforgiving. The brothers again thought the words spoken back in chapter 45 were just that, words. They did not believe that Joseph could possibly forgive him for all this. They thought, how could he forgive us? He was their father's favorite and they treated him horribly. We treated him horribly, they must be thinking, on the way back. It says back in chapter 36, verse 4, when the story comes right out of the gate of Joseph, it says, they could not say a kind word to Joseph. They premeditated killing him. They sold him into slavery. And the brothers were probably high-fiving as they, he, they, they watched him go over the last sand dune being dragged behind a camel in chains. And they lied to the father about his demise and they dipped that, that coat that drove them crazy that his father had given him in blood and torn it and lied and said Joseph was killed. They had the view... Good riddance to bad rubbish. And they forgot about him for 22 years. How could somebody forgive that? As one writer put it, though treated kindly by Joseph, an increasing sense of the awfulness of their crime made them wonder how Joseph could possibly have forgiven them. An increasingly 
increasing sense of their awfulness. So they made up a story about Jacob's last wish in verse 16 and 17. This, is, this was your dad's final ask. Forgive us. Out of fear, they planned to manipulate Joseph. Perhaps they thought Joseph's, Joseph will honor Jacob's last words. Perhaps it will soften J- uh, Joseph's heart to truly forgive us. Because nobody could just forgive as Joseph did, they think. It can't be that cut and dry. It can't be that simple that he just forgives us. It can't be that easy. For many, that's the question that we return to again and again in our experience as a Christian. When we sin, we continue to sin. Can God continue to forgive us? Or perhaps your past has some particularly egregious sin. And you think there's no way that God can forgive that, can just say you're forgiven. There's no way. It comes in various questions that we ask. How could God forgive my past? How could he forgive so much? How could he forgive so easily? I mean, I just prayed a prayer of repentance. How could God so completely forgive my sins? We struggle with accepting God's forgiveness, don't we? You know, it's, there's a movie called The Mission. Do you know that movie? It's a great movie. It's set in the 1700s and follows a Jesuit priest, Father Gabriel, as he works with a remote tribe in Argentina. In this movie, Robert De Niro plays a slave trader, Rodrigo Mendoza, who in the past has kidnapped members of his tribe to sell into slavery. He later repents of his actions and goes back with Father Gabriel to work with the tribe that he once stole people out and sold into slavery. But Mendoza cannot accept the forgiveness that he has accepted, that he has been given. And he carries the guilt of this slave trade with him. In one scene, he and the priest are going back up the mountain into the jungle, back to the tribe. And as penance, Mendoza bundles up all his armor and his weapons and, and, and drags it up the mountain as penance. He can't imagine God forgiving him for the sin of slavery. So he punishes himself. The picture of what we do many, many times, brothers and sisters. We can't accept that God has forgiven us. It can't be that his forgiveness is that complete, that comprehensive. Some look at their past like Mendoza and think, my sin is too great, I can't possibly be forgiven. Some look at their lives right now and think, I, I, it's the same sin. It's the same one. How can I go back to him again? He will not forgive me. 
We all, at a greater or lesser level, look at our sin and God's immense forgiveness and say, it can't be that easy. And we ask, am I truly, absolutely forgiven? I want us all to just take a walk through Scripture right now and let the power of God's Word wash over us. Because I struggle with this. And it's encouraging for me to reread Psalm 103 that says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's a complete forgiveness. God is saying, I forgive you. It's wonderful to read Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with God's great riches in grace. God is saying, I forgive you. He reminds us in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That reminds me that the same sin that I stumble with yesterday, the day before, and last week, and last month, and by the way, since 2003 when I got here, he will forgive. God is saying, I forgive you, Blake. For I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31, 34. God is whispering to me and to us, I forgive you. Micah 7, 19, I will tread your sins underfoot and hurl your iniquities into the depths of the sea. I forgive you. Jesus saying, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That was said before a table just like this 2,000 years ago. He was saying, I forgive you. Why we do this? It's a table of forgiveness. It's a table to remind us that we are forgiven sinners. Yes, we sin, but we're forgiven completely, totally, past, present, and future. Some of us struggle with that future part. How can he do that? I haven't even sinned tomorrow yet. But like Joseph's brothers, we don't believe it. We look at what we've done and we simply can't accept that we are forgiven. So, like Mendoza, what we do is we treat God like a taskmaster. Because we can't believe that we are forgiven in some way, shape, or form, we approach God like a taskmaster. We can't believe that such grand and complete forgiveness comes without a cost. I have to do something for, to earn this. It, there has to be something I do, right? There has to be some type of mountain that I have to drag something up, right? And so we act like Joseph's brothers in verse 18. Look at what Joseph's brothers did. 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. We are your slaves. They're asking to become Joseph's slaves. I mean, very similar to the prodigal, right? I can't just come back into my father's house without some kind of payment. They want to work away their guilt. They want to earn their forgiveness. They're asking Joseph if they can carry their armor up the hill. Can I please just drag this behind me? And we do that. That's what we do. We are asking God all the time. Treating Joseph like a taskmaster that must be paid back for the forgiveness. And that's what we do in little and big ways through actions and through motivations of our heart. That's the tough one. That's the tough one. We know in our head that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. We know that in our head. But we are drawn like bees to honey to works righteousness. What? do I have to do to work to pay back God? We're like the Tin Man in the original Wizard of Oz, not the movie, but in the book by Frank Baum. In the original fairy tale version, the Tin Woodsman had once been a real man who was in love with a beautiful maiden and dreamed of marrying her. The witch hated their love so much that she cast a spell on the man so that one by one, his limbs had to be replaced with artificial tin limbs. And the tin limbs allowed him to work like a machine. So he had a heart of love and arms that never tired of work. That's, that's our curse, if you will. As believers, we're kind of bifurcated in this way knowing that it's by grace we're saved. It's by grace that I'm saved, not through works. But we can't help but wanting to pay back God in some way. Our limbs, if you will, can't stop working. We're told again and again, there is no quid pro quo. There's no fee to be paid, but we continue to drag our armor up the hill. We think that the longer that we are in prayer or the more good works that we do or maybe the nicer we are or the more church functions that we go to or the more Bible studies that we lead or the more money that we give or the more help we are to people in the community. We feel that if we do these things, we have in some way paid God back. If I can do enough, I can pay God back. We're like Joseph's brothers. We're like that in that we act towards God like a taskmaster. We say, I'll be your slave, so please forgive me. That's what Joseph's brothers were saying. And any time we say, I'll be your slave, so please forgive my sin, 
It's works righteousness. It's empty religion. The person that truly understands the gospel says this, please forgive my sin and I'll be your slave. That's the right priority. The gospel is accepted, be accepted and obey. Works religion is obey and then I'll be accepted. There's only one person who obeyed in order to be accepted, and that is Jesus Christ. It's the only person that obeyed and then was accepted. He was born under the law, Galatians 4 says, to redeem those under the law. In other words, he was born to actually fulfill the law. That's what he said, right? I have not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. Meaning, not sinning in word, thought, or deed throughout 33 and a third years. In Elise Fitzpatrick's book, Comforts from Romans, he writes, Jesus Christ never made one decision, consciously or unconsciously, in his whole 33 years that wasn't completely consistent with loving his father and his neighbor. And his obedience wasn't an outward performance. He always did the right thing for the right reason. He worked perfectly to secure his position. And the gospel says he gave it up to give it to us. He dragged his armor all the way up the hill of cavalry. And died in our place. That is what this table reminds us of. That he did the work. So that we don't have to. That we just trust in his completed work. His perfect life that we can never live. That's what believing in Christ means. That's what trusting in Christ means. That all these little teeny ways that we try and earn our, our salvation needs to be repented of because he did it on our behalf. He took the punishment for our sins and died the death that we deserve and rose again on the third day, defeating death, sin, and Satan. That's the gospel that we celebrate as we come into the table together. I've, I appreciate this table more and more and more the longer I meditate on it because I've not begun to plumb the depths of what this represents. So I just want us to focus today on this representing a celebration that we don't have to earn our salvation. That's what I want us to focus on as we go into a time where we're going to receive spiritually from Christ the nourishment we need. Let's spend a few moments just thinking about that and pondering that I don't need to earn my salvation. I'm accepted. Thus I joyfully obey. I don't obey to be accepted. Let's take a few moments.